invite you to, to read along with us um, and uh, just consider what God is going to be uh, counseling us through this wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, if you can, let's stand as we read God's word this morning, okay? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who, could, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your mo great, most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, 
hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lord, would you <coughs> allow us to rest in the fact, Lord, that you are the only one that can keep us from falling. Lord, you are the great God and Savior, Lord, whom we worship. And you have allowed the, the compilation of your word to include this little book. And Lord, I ask that over the next few weeks that you would allow us to marinate, Lord, in what it is that you are saying here so that we personally, as well as a church corporately, can be aware, Lord, of what it is that you want to say to us through this book, but Lord, also so that we can be ready to, um, to do, Lord, the things that we're called to do because we're believers who are following you. And Lord, would you just allow us during this time to set the stage, to get the big picture and to, to comprehend, Lord, um, what it is that uh, you want us to be aware of today and to act on it. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <coughs> in the ancient world, uh, there were no emails, no instant messages, no iPhones, no FedEx, no UPS, no uh, United States Postal Service. Um, if a person wanted to send communication to another, he had three options. Option Number one um, was to use the Imperial Postal Service, but that was restricted to a privileged few. And you know, when you, when you hear about, you know, kings and rulers and generals and people like that, you know, sending stuff out, there was certainly this, this formal Imperial Service, but that was not for the common man, that was for the elite. Secondly, he could send the message to a slave or a hired person whose job it was specifically to carry that message to that location. Of course, that meant you either had to own a slave or you had the kind of resources to hire that person to go all that distance and then to come back again. But the common person um, would not have those kinds of privileges. They likely did not have a slave. They likely did not have much money. And so what was very, very typical was that they would secure someone who just happened to be traveling in the right direction. <clears throat> and with a little bit of resources, finances, and with some written des descriptions and directions, <clears throat> the traveler would begin the journey. It may be days, maybe weeks, it may be months before they would arrive. <clears throat> but they would finally get to their destination and hand over that letter and it would be read with significant attention. Now, friends, I think we who are now living in today's culture, even those of us who are a little older in years, still may have lost sight of the impact of what it means to receive a letter like this. I remember <clears throat> when I was in college, which was many moons ago, right, before, just after the foundation of the world, okay, back then... Um, we moved from England to the United States. 
And to call on the phone someone in England was extremely expensive. And so I would have to write letters to my friends. And I would write them and I put them in the mail. And I would expect a response maybe two months later. By the time it actually got over there, by the time they read it, by the time they remembered to write back, you know, it was a long time. It was a long journey. And friends, we need to recognize that because when you receive a letter or a response from something that you put in the mail two months ago, and that letter finally comes with some answers, you're eager to receive those answers. But in today's culture, we email, we instant message, we text, and boom, it's automatically there. And if not that, we pick up the phone. All right, let's take it back a little bit. You know, a little bit. Remember the time when, when phones were fixed to a wall? And you made a phone call hoping the person you were looking for happened to be there. You weren't texting them to say, hey, listen, be ready for the phone call at 2.15. You just happened to try and catch them. And so we may have lost sight of the impact of why these letters that we have in the New Testament are so impactful and so significant. There was heart that was placed in writing down what is penned in these particular letters. And this letter in particular is a letter from a man by the name of Jude. And Jude <clears throat> is writing to a general audience. It's a specific audience, but it's a general audience. It is a, an audience that includes believers, but not believers in a particular church, but believers everywhere. And of course, he's, he's calling them to contend for the faith, and you find that in verse 3. Now, that is kind of the, the idea of, of the setting, and what is, what is actually going on here? Certain people had crept into the church and were twisting the grace of God and denying the Lord Jesus. Literally, they had wormed their way into the church. Or because Ron is here today, I want to say they have termited themselves into the church. And when you termite yourself into the church, it, those termites destroy the structure and the foundation so that everything that is holding it together falls apart. And these certain people had crept into the church like termites, like worms, and were eating away at the core of the faith. And their infiltration was so dangerous that Jude changed his plans for the content of this letter. And instead, rather than encourage them in the gospel, he felt a need to fight and protect it as well as the church. And so as believers, we realize that we will suffer persecution. We, we understand that. We, we hear God's word say that. In this world, you will have tribulation. We recognize that trials will be a part of life. But often, I think, we're shocked to realize how significant and how prevalent a distorted gospel in the church is. We don't expect the gospel to be distorted in the context of the church. We don't expect false teaching to come in in the way that it does. Oh, it may be in other churches, but we don't expect it here. And we don't expect, expect that influence to be a part of what's going on in the challenge. Now, we know it comes, but oftentimes we think about, you know, the, the kind of battles that come from the outside. But Jude is talking about 
struggles that are coming from the inside. And so he calls them to contend for the faith. And that, you might want to say, is the theme of this book. Now, it isn't politically correct to draw attention to a faulty and distorted gospel. When I say politically correct, I'm talking about even within the body of Christ in America. It is usually considered to be judgmental, unloving, and divisive. But that kind of response, friends, comes from a soft Christianity that does not want to pay attention to the concerns that Jude is alerting the churches to. Jude is not soft. Jude is loving and careful and is pouring his heart out for something that is critically important for the health of the church. That soft Christianity would rather focus on the good bits of the Bible like love and grace and peace and kindness and good works, which are all good bits and we love them. But those would also be empty of any lasting gospel teeth if they're not complemented with the truth about the nature of man and the struggles with sinfulness. And again, Matt in our interview this morning just talked about, about that and how wonderful it is to, 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 to see people who come to a realization of their condition. Why? Because it's that that is the place where they can now begin to see the beauty of the gospel. Now what good does it do to be kind to someone? to love them and welcome them, but never tell them the real nature of their standing before God. That they are sinful in every part of their being, that they are enemies of God, that they are blind, that they are without hope, except in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kindness, gentleness, patience, all those things that we see as wonderful virtues are really empty unless they have the teeth of the gospel connected with them. And we must have a balance of that. And so Jude is calling the church to be aware of this false teaching that is entering and creeping into the church. It would be unloving. It would be ungracious. It would be giving assurances of false peace, unkind and untimely, um, an untimely attempt at, at empty work that ultimately would leave these people helpless and hopeless in their sin. It would be dishonest and uncaring if we did not speak the whole gospel. Now, this is nothing new to we who are a part of Gateway Bible Church. This is something that is part of our foundation. This is part of why we believe that there was a need for a church like ours in this community because we recognize the gospel is so important and it needs to be robust, and we want to do our part to maintain the fact that it is robust. Now, Jude, I think, is right in his assessment. We must recognize what Jude is saying and that it is true, and it should teach us that a healthy church is a church that is contending for the faith, and it should teach us that a healthy Christian is one who is contending for the faith. Now, let's just think about that word contend. The word contend has the idea of struggle, has the idea of energy and agony being exerted like an athlete would use when he is in the midst of some kind of competition. So when I think of that word contend and it's, you know, with, with its descriptions here, there, there are two athletic competitions that come to mind. The first one um, is weightlifting. 
And the reason weightlifting comes to my mind is because my brother was very, very much into weightlifting when I was in England. And so because he was very, very much into weightlifting, I was the little brother that tagged along. And so I learned a lot about weightlifting. But I know when, when it comes to weightlifting, where, where the, the lifter has cleaned the bar up to his chest and he is now getting ready to jerk it all the way up and hold it um, with security and control above his head, he is exerting incredible struggle and agony to get it up. You see, there's agony to clean. Now, you don't know what the clean is. The clean is the actual lifting that bar off the ground and getting it to your chest. And if you've watched these guys, just that motion of picking the bar up and they drop their whole body, they only pick it up like maybe a foot and a half. And the rest of what they do is they get their body under it and then they have to push and push and push and push until they get to that place where they're standing upright. And while they're doing that, they're wobbling their legs, they're trying to maintain their, their control, they're getting their footing just right because the next thing is the jerk. And the jerk is when simultaneously one leg goes forward and one leg goes backward and they're dropping because actually you don't do any really much lifting at all. What you do now is you drop underneath the bar. Now you've got about so high. So this is about what? Four feet? So the, the jerk is this. You basically are pushing at the same time you're dropping and you're coming down as low as you can and that bar is now underneath you, and now you've got to push up with everything you have with your legs, holding your arms straight above your head, and you get to that, po that point where you're steady and in control, and the judges say, you can drop it. Now, if you've ever watched that, these guys are like bursting at the seams, they're struggling, they're shaking, all of that is the kind of picture that's going on here. Now, the other picture I think of is the picture of boxing. Anyone here ever done boxing before? All right, a little bit, okay. Now, if you have not spent three minutes in a ring with someone with boxing gloves on, you know, whipping away at each other, you don't know what it means to be gutted. I mean, you have to have incredible endurance. And so these boxes are in there, I mean, for 12 rounds, you know, to last one round would be incredible. And I'm not telling you to go out and do it, okay? I'm just saying just the realization of boxing is, is a context where you're exerting so much energy, your arms hurt from punching. We just try and do that, you know, for a while. That's why, you know, this becomes actually a workout thing, right? Because it hurts. And then your legs feel like jello and your gut is saying, breathe, breathe. And you're starting to wobble and you're not sure if you can go on, but as a boxer... You've got to keep on fighting until you hear that bell. And then you rush back to the chair. You would notice when they go back to the seat, they're not kind of going back and just saying, okay, you know, I'm going to sit down nice and soft. No, they're going back and they're like this, right? They just kind of flopped on the ropes because they're exhausted. Friends, that's the kind of picture here. There is something exhausting about standing true with the gospel. And Jude here is calling the church to contend for the faith. But what's different about these illustrations I gave is they're all about a game. This is about the health and the integrity of the faith. Now let's think about what the expression the faith encompasses. The faith is an expression that describes the core doctrinal truths that are vital for health and well-being of the gospel. It encompasses what the church believes 
to be the truth that was delivered to the saints once for all. In this book, the faith encompasses both grace and Jesus Christ, his person, who he is, his master and Lord, his work, what he has done, his grace. The faith also encompasses what the gospel calls followers to do, which Jude describes as remembering the words of the apostles, building one another up in those holy words, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord, having mercy on those who are struggling, hating the garments that are stained by the flesh. And so, friends, the bottom line for Jude's uh, argument in his letter and the urgency of this letter is that the church was suffering from infiltration and it needed to be warned about its presence. It needed to be alerted to its nature and it needed to be instructed as to how to confront it. And friends, as much as we would like to think that our American Christianity is comfortable, is settled, and in agreement about the faith, we must be willing to see that it is not. And that it is in danger of perverting grace and denying Jesus as Master and Lord. We don't like to admit it, but the infiltration is alive and well. And today, it comes into our church in many forms. In Jews' day, it came in primarily through a physical presence. Here is a person actually physically in the the gathering of the people who is presenting ideas and ideologies and, and doctrines that are foreign to the truth. But in our day... Such false teachers do not necessarily need to enter physically into the congregation, although they may still do that, and they do. But they enter through things like the television set, the radio, um, the internet, blogs, websites, popular books, magazines, Christian books, secular books. You know, why is it, isn't it interesting that over the, the past number of years there's been a number of books that have been really popular in, Christi- well, in culture, that have kind of a Christianized theme to it, that, that Christians are being attracted to. All right? I mean, you can think, what, The Secret? Has that been a popular one pretty recently? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and Christians who are thinking, oh, I'll go over to that, I'll read that, you know, and they're opening themselves up to things that they should not be opening themselves up to. The Shack would be another example that just presented the, 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 you know, the Godhead in a totally distorted way. But for for whatever reason, all of these things are coming at the church, but not in the normal way, but in kind of a peripheral from the outside in. And we are turning our radios on. We're listening to different people. We might listen to someone who's really sound, and the next person that comes on is not. And the question is, do we have the discernment to be able to know which is good and which is not? And sometimes our laziness kicks in. We just want something other than, you know, talk radio or whatever else it might be and so we allow ourselves to listen to someone and, oh they tell a nice story and it was funnier and whatever is attractive and so there are different ways it can come in we all love to surf well those that like to surf love to surf right reading blogs and different ideas and this there is junk out there all over the internet that is counter gospel and so friends there's a realization that 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 this this false ideas these false gospels are affecting the church, but not in the normal way we would think. And so we must be very, very careful. 
Now, if you have children and your children are getting on the Internet, I know we a lot of times will talk about the problems of you know, things that are on the Internet for children, but this is also true about the gospel and the area of music in the gospel. What kind of, you say, oh, I want my kids to listen to you know, Christian music. Oh, who are the bands that they're listening to? And what do those bands actually believe? And what is the gospel that they are promoting in their songs? Those are important questions because there's a lot out there that are really popular that are not sound in the faith. So we've got we to gotta be discerning. Now, if you think that I'm simply paranoid, please recognize that Jude was not. He was simply and lovingly warning those whom he loved about a deep-rooted problem that they needed to be aware of and to fight against. So I'm not paranoid. This is God's word, right? Secondly, if you think that I'm just looking for a fight, please recognize Jude was not. He recognized that he and all the saints were already in a fight. We're not looking for a fight. We have no choice but to fight for the health and the integrity of the gospel because of the false ideas that are out there. It's not Christian to say, well, you know what, I'm just not going to say anything, I'm just going to be kind, when the gospel is being distorted all over the place. Because you're allowing people then to believe things that aren't true. You're allowing the worms to come in and to, to tear up the foundation. So why Jude? It's a good question. Um, it's a neglected book. I don't know if you've ever you know, been in, a, in the context of a church where the, you know, the pastor has preached through the, the, the book of Jude. It is not commonly done. It is a neglected book. Now, often it's neglected because of, it, of its shortness um, and its strange content. I don't know if you read it, but there's some stuff in there you're just like, oh, okay, I'm, what's that all about? You know, Michael the archangel and Moses' bones? What's, what's that, you know? Um, and there's actually there's a real, real good reason why he's using that. And what about this Enoch story quote and all that kind of stuff? So there's some strangeness in it. So often it's neglected, um, but often the neglected books of the New Testament are the very books that we actually need to be studying. Okay? So just be, be careful uh, not to say, oh, why are we doing this? No, it's, it's part of God's word, right? Secondly, it's, it's an avoided book, and I would say it's avoided for some similar reasons, for its difficult content. I mean, as a preacher, you know, so I've got to sort this stuff out. You know, give me something easy, all right, rather than this. This is not easy, and I'm not saying, oh, look at me, you know, I've taken on Jude. No, but the point is, it's not easy to sort it all out, but it's important for us to do our best to sort it all out for the glory of God, to see what he's having to say here, Okay. It's difficult content, it's confrontational command, contend for the faith, often drives people away from actually preaching this in the context of a church. Number three, it's a very important book. We don't want to let the shortness fool us. We don't want to let the perceived harsh tone of the book hinder us from growing in Christ. The message of Jude is critical for the health of the church in 2013. Why? Because it deals with the lordship, the sovereignty, and the deity of Christ. Notice how Jesus Christ is, is mentioned in this book. Look at verse 1. It's just mentioned here in his relationship to Jude. 
Verse 4, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, to the only God and our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that Lord and Jesus Christ are put together many times there and early in the church to get to the place where he is recognizing this lordship status is saying something. He is recognized by the common faith to be the Lord and Master. Okay? It's a very important book. It's also a relevant book. These are not just things that Jude is talking about that happened back in history. These are struggles that we are facing today. Has the church today allowed itself to twist the grace of God to sensuality? Is there a sensual side to how the church comes to worship and how the church you know, seeks to pursue their walk with God? And I would say absolutely. So helping us grasp what the struggles look like and what is behind them and how we can confront them as well as help those who are entangled in their grip is part of the relevance of this book because this stuff is alive and well today. It's a timely book. I say it's timely in particular for us at Gateway. We have just gone through six sermons on what, you know, what, are, what is biblical eldership and the need for biblical eldership. And in this particular book, we see really laid out for us what ungodly presence looks like and what ungodly teaching looks like. And it kind of complements what we've looked at as far as eldership is concerned with the, with the, 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 the character qualities that we've already looked at and the, and the, the commands that God has given uh, uh, that are responsibilities for elders. It kind of helps us give a, a backdrop to our understanding about how awful these leaders are or these teachers are in the context of what Jude is saying. So we, we have this fresh awareness to compare with what is actually going on in here as far as the, the, the kind of words that are used to describe these leaders. All right, number, number six. This might sound kind of redundant. It's a biblical book. Well, yeah, duh. Well, the, the point here is this. We can be confident that what we're preaching and teaching is part of the whole counsel of God. God wants us to go through a book like Jude. Okay? It might be one that we would naturally tend to avoid because of the difficulty, but God wants his church to plow through a book like this. And so we've got to jump at it. We've got to be excited about it. We've got to say, okay, God, you're going to teach us something through this. All right? And the last one is this. It's a helpful book. It really is helpful. It's going to give us sound counsel, sound advice. It's going to give us action and direction. It's going to give us um, some, some way to actually measure what is true and what is not. So I think some very, very good reasons why Jude. Now, let's just move on to what I'm calling keys to understanding Jude. We've already talked about the key theme, contending for the faith, um, which we will develop more fully next week. Um, but that is, that is a key theme, verse, verse 3 in particular, and it kind of unfolds as we go throughout the book. Um, but there are some key people that need to be mentioned here. There's the author, who is Jude. Um, there are the recipients who are the believers. And then there are the, the problem people, call them false teachers. 
And they are identified at the beginning in verse 4 as certain people. And you will see them referred to again as these people, these people, these, and these people again throughout this little letter. Okay? So there's basically three groups that are going on, three peoples that are being talked about here. There's Jude, there are the believers, and then there are these people who are these false teachers. Now there are other um, people that are identified. Of course, Moses is in there as an, as an illustration. Um, you have Michael the Archangel. You have a lot of illustrations from the Old Testament going on there. But these are the groups that are, that are working through this. Okay. Now, um, some key, what I'm calling literary devices. You don't have to write all this stuff down, but you can look for yourself. Jude loves to work with threes. Okay? He loves to work with the use of threes. Now, it's a literary device. This is not, this is not pointing to, you know, the, the Holy Trinity or something like that, okay? It's a literary device, just, but he's using three, three, three. And just think through, just as we've already read it. Here are some things, right? Called, beloved, and kept. Mercy, peace, and love. Unbelievers in the wilderness. Angels who rebelled. Cities destroyed. Defiled in the flesh. Reject authority. Blaspheme God. Cain, Balaam, Korah. Grumblers, malcontents, loudmouth boasters. They cause division, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. So his descriptions, his illustrations, the things he says are, are packaged in threes. Okay? That's why preachers like this book, because three points in a poem, right? I, well, I don't know any poems, so you can't get that from me. But, but it, it's helpful to kind of, as a literary device, to see things broken up and kind of grouped together like that. Okay? Then it helps us as we, as we kind of work through to understand what it is that he's saying and why he's, he's describing or maybe using three terms to describe these people. Now the next thing I want us to do is I want us to consider the structure of Jude. I'm not going to walk through in great detail, but I think it's helpful to kind of get this blueprint to, to let us see where we're going to be traveling and why we're going to be traveling in the direction that we're going to be traveling. Okay? So now I want you to notice, first of all, there is this greeting Right, which is what we're going to end up with today. We're going to look at the greeting. And there, there's always um, a reason for the greeting. It's not just something that you just kind of plow through to get to the good stuff. Um, uh, there's some important things that are said in the greeting. And then there's a warning, verses 3 and 4. And the warning in verse 3 talks about contending for the faith. And that is ultimately answered in verses 17 through 23. This is how you contend for the faith. In verse 4, we find out about these certain people and what they're doing. And verses um, 5 through 16 give us fuller understanding and fuller illustration description of what it is that they're doing. Okay? And that how what they're doing is not new under the sun. So then we move to number 3, and that fleshes out then this, uh, this, this second portion, right? Those who are perverting the gospel. And really what we have there are, are two sermons. I think what, what Jude, uh, what Jude or who Jude was, was serving God in the capacity of a pastor, and he is quickly writing this letter, and he is drawing on some sermons that he preached on these very things. And, you know, sometimes when we preachers, we, we, we say, man, that was, really a, that was really a good message. Ahead of time, it was like, oh, I hope this is a good message. Afterwards, you're like, you know what? That was good. Not because I wrote it, but because of what we mind as we work through God's word. And it's like, this is really needful. And so now he's writing this letter to the churches, and including in there are two sermons. And that helps us then 
understand a little bit of how we approach those sections that seem very, very confusing. You know, how does Michael the archangel fit in with, with you know, these illustrations that are used earlier? There's a reason for it if you look at it from the perspective of this is a sermon that was preached. Okay? And there's a second sermon also. Then there are those instructions for contending for the faith, and then there's this benediction, which, by the way, is one of the most beautiful benedictions that there is in the Bible. Okay? Uh, you may have heard people pray it at the end of services or different places, but it is a wonderful, wonderful benediction, okay? So here's, here's kind of like the map. Here is where we're going. Now we're going to go systematically, verse by verse, a few verses at a time, uh, 1 through 2, 3 through 4, 5, uh, 5 through 10, 11 through 16, 17 through 23, and then 24 through 25 as we work our way through this book. And there's a need for us to take our time. There's a need for us to recognize that God wants to do something in us. He wants to do something to reveal these things to us. So here's the big picture of the book. Contend for the faith. There's a good reason why, because people have come in and they perverted the gospel and they have, they have denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. And now he speaks to what do you do with that? What is it rooted in? And here's what I want you to do as you contend for the faith. Okay? Now, let's jump back now to verses 1 and 2. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. We want to lay the foundation of this, this greeting. It's a warm greeting. I'm calling it a very warm greeting. So as we begin our time here, um, I want to say first of all that this, this greeting is important because it contains key statements and key truths that are very, very helpful for us in understanding the kind of relationship that Jude had with these people, uh, the people that he's writing to, and some other things that he says. There are some critical tools to help us understand this letter. And so rather than rushing through the greeting and getting to what we perceive to be the meat and potatoes, we want to take our time here to, to, to kind of dig down into this particular, um, this particular greeting. Okay? There, there's, a, there's a tone in this greeting that I think is helpful in our understanding of what Jude is saying. It's a tone of warmth, of love, of concern, of brotherhood that is pushing the churches to act with passion for the sake of the gospel and the sake of those who are God's children. So I, I want to just step back and say there's a tone that is absolutely necessary. And if we, if we bypass the greeting and we rush to <laughs> verse 3 and, and we, we start screaming a, in a harsh preaching tone that is red-faced, that is angry-looking, that is sweating, calling everyone to contend for the faith. We miss the tone of what this is about. Okay? This is a pastor pouring out his heart urgently because there is a crisis of concern for the sake of the gospel and the health of the church. And if you bypass verses 1 and 2, you could very easily say it's just contend for the faith, contend for the faith. And you can get an idea of you know, a sweaty preacher up there just barreling away. Man, it preaches all these bad people in the Old Testament. You know, that's not the tone. The tone is a loving pastor saying, here is the problem. I want you to be aware of it. Now let me show you. This is not new. This is where it was. You see it in the Old Testament. Let me show you a couple times now. Here's what I want you to do with this. It changes how we approach this book. And there is a perceived harshness to this book. Now, it is harsh. 
in that it clearly identifies a faulty gospel. But that's not really harsh in the sense, it's just truth. And sometimes what is true seems hard to those who don't like the truth, right? But the, to those who love the truth, being clear and being, being crisp is helpful and is a loving thing. And so we can all agree um, that there is a definite command here to contend for the faith. But that command is set in a, in a context and in a tone of love and care, of care and concern for God, for, for his gospel, and for his church. I'm reminded of that verse in, in the Proverbs. Um, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And if we bypass this greeting, we don't get the settings of silver. And so it's just important to kind of get that backdrop and that context, right? Now, look at verse, uh, verses 22 and 23 just quickly. And notice the tone of ministry Jude is calling the church to. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Just think of those images. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Friend, that's, that's a really important <coughs> phrase that helps us identify, you know what, love that person who is struggling, hate the sin that they are struggling with and that is entangling them. Okay. Now, there's a quick lesson for us to glean at this point that says this. When the church needs to say hard things, when it is called to warn, to protect, to speak the truth, there should always be a backdrop of familial love and concern for the family of God. Now, there are times as a dad I have to sit down with my family and with my kids in particular, and I have to say some hard things. But typically when that is the case, I will say, listen, you know that dad loves you. You know that I want the best for you. And so what I'm about to share with you, the words that are going to come out of my mouth might seem harsh. You may not like them initially, but hear them because they're coming out of genuine, genuineness and love for you. And if you're a parent, you've had those conversations before. And we have very similar things going on here, and that should be the tone of how we approach things in the context of the church. So we're not looking to, to fight amongst the brethren, um, but to fight for the gospel. And we must be careful that we don't mix those things up. We want to expose and encourage in love and mercy, praying for discernment and clarity for all. And with that in mind, let's look at this, these first two verses of this letter uh, with the time that we have left. And no, notice this, this warm greeting. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now there's three parts to this greeting, right? There's Jude who's the author, there's the believers who are the recipients, and then there are these promises that are given to us by God. So let's look at, first of all, I'm calling God's preacher. His name is Jude. Actually, his name is Judas. You see a problem already. Who wants to be called Judas, right? And, and part of the reason he is called Jude, and we, we know him as Judas because the early church wanted to distance themselves from that particular connection with, 
um, with Judas, and Jude himself probably did the same thing too, did not want to be connected with Judas Iscariot. Okay, of course, the one who betrayed Jesus. And there's something about names, right? I just think, we've had a lot of babies that have been born this summer. If I were to ask the parents, why did you choose not to use a name? And more than likely, it's because, you know, as, as if you had a little girl, the dad's thinking, well, I'm not going to call that girl this one because that's someone I used to date back then. And, and you know, so you, you, choose, you choose names that you do not want to associate with people that you either had problems with or whatever it might be. See what I'm saying? You're, you're careful about names. And so Jude here is careful about his identification, but he does want to be known. He does want to be recognized. Um, and so we have a little problem here because there are six Judes um, or Judases in the New Testament. So which one is he? Well, that's why he gives some clarification statements here. We're going to take them actually backwards. We're going to go, first of all, with what is said here about the fact that he is the brother of James. Right? He is the brother of James. And this kind of whittles it down now to two options. He's either the apostle uh, Jude, um, or the brother of, sorry, the, of the apostle, no, the apostle Jude, or he is, he is the brother of James, who is also the half-brother of Jesus. Now turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Now this is really important, and this is why I bring it up first. He identifies himself as the brother of James. And if we read this passage, Mark chapter 6, I think in Matthew there's also um, an accounting. We notice here, I'll just read it, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Little side note, it's a very, very simple question. Did Jesus have brothers and sisters? Answer, how do we know? Okay, they're half-brothers and sisters, but they had brothers and sisters. Okay, so it's just, I mean, it's, it's there as plain as it can say it. All right? Now, it is generally accepted that the Jude that we're looking at that wrote this letter is this particular Jude, I want to say the second youngest brother or half-brother of Jesus. Now notice, he also identifies himself as a servant of Jesus. But remember, this word servant is the soft form of what that word actually means. It means slave. Okay? He is a slave of Jesus. Now, just, just think about what's going on. This is an incredibly huge statement that Jude is making for us here. Now, if Jude were around today, you can just imagine, if Jude were around today, he would be counseled by those that wanted him to market his ministry by identifying himself as the brother of whom? Of Jesus. You're the brother of Jesus. Put that on the front of your book. That will sell. And he probably would be challenged by some book companies to write an autobiography of his time with Jesus. You know, the life and times of Jesus the Messiah through the eyes of Jude especially all those parts that aren't contained in the Bible that we have here. Wow, what a seller that would be, right? That would definitely be on PBS, for sure. The tabloids would be calling him up all the time to get inside scoops. 
But Jude here places himself totally under the authority of his half-brother Christ. He points to the fact that he, the very half-brother of Jesus, is a believer in Jesus and is a convert to Jesus. Can you imagine that? One who recognizes that the very one that he worships as Savior and Lord he grew up with. He played games with. He did chores with. Looked up to. And Jude has been converted from unbelief. And now he is a follower of his brother. Not in a brotherly sense. You see, and I think there's something important here to recognize. He identifies himself as the brother of James, but he identifies himself as the slave of Jesus. He's, in a sense, not clinging to his familial relationship with Jesus. He's clinging to his eternal relationship with Jesus. He is a slave. He's a convert. He's a follower. He's a Christian. And so he willfully demonstrates that if anyone had the right to claim an elevated status with Jesus, it was he, but he doesn't. He's permitted, sorry, he's committed to being a slave of Jesus. And friends, that smacks against our contemporary desire to get out from, from under any notion of authority. Judas willfully submitting himself to his half-brother. We struggle with authority, whether, whether we recognize it out there in, in our culture, but we also recognize that what happens in the culture then spills over into the church, and we struggle with the biblical authority, we, we struggle with church authority, we struggle with vocational and, and marital authority structures. And such an attitude always leads to some kind of trouble and destruction. And we have a propensity to play the rebel, to throw off any and all vestiges of authority. But Jude, almost immediately, three words in to his little letter, counters that kind of attitude and identifies himself as Jesus' slave. And there is no sense of reluctance or resignation, but rather an encouraging joy. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And friends, this, is, this should teach us to never think that it's wrong or demeaning to identify ourselves as ones who are under authority. There's something pleasing about living by God's design. So that's God's preacher. Then there's God's people. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. So Jude here writes to a specific but broad audience, those. There's no single person listed. There's no particular church listed. He is writing to all men and all women in many different churches. And we who are gathered here over 2,000 years later find ourselves in this category of those. We identify with this group that he's speaking to. Now there's three words or phrases that Jude uses to, to describe this particular group of people. They are those that are called. And this is a clear description, friends, of a true believer. 
and it is rooted in the very thought and the character of God himself. He calls us. He called us. We have been called. God's people are his people because of God's choice. God initiated the call, and he calls us. And by his will, we come. We come because he called us. And that's, that, that word describes then those whom he called to himself. And so the word called reflects the New Testament conviction that being a Christian is a product of God's gracious reaching out to bring helpless sinners into a relationship with himself. This, of course, is what we call the doctrine of divine election and is taught throughout the Scriptures. The word call does not mean simply to invite, and you can choose whether you're going to accept or not accept. No, this means you are called, and specifically it means to choose or to select. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, when he was wrestling with these truths, came to this conclusion. I believe that the doctrine of election or believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I, never, uh, I should never have chosen him. And, if, and, I am sure that, and I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Uh, in, a, in a very therapeutic culture, uh, there is this emphasis on self-love. We can think of reasons why God would look down at me. But we are coming to God with all the wrong forms. So what does the song say? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. He calls us, he draws us, we come by his will and he embraces us. And friends, this is, this is what's beautiful here, is that God is in this business of calling. The fact that you are a child of God is because he called you. And so this, this word describes those whom he has called to himself. And you're a part of that if you're one of his children. But not only are you called, and he describes them here, but you're also beloved in the Father. This is who they are. They're beloved in the Father. Well, this special love, this calling love, this effectual calling love has been bestowed on them by the Father. Yes, he is the one who loves us, but this love is in God the Father. Okay, it's in God the Father. In other words, this isn't so much speaking about the source of that love, but rather the arena or the context of that love. In the fellowship or communion that we have with the Father, we are his family, we are his body, we are his branches, and all these images help us to understand this relationship that we have with our Father. We're in the Father, we're beloved in the Father, and there's this wonderful communion that we have with him that is unique to those who are called. But not only that, they are kept for Jesus Christ. Just think about that phrase, kept for Jesus Christ. And so although it's true to say that we are kept by Jesus, and we are, Jude is stressing the fact that we are being kept for Jesus. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says this. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the idea of being kept for Jesus means that as believers, we can be sure that if there are trials, if there are struggles, if there's temptations, if there are crises that we're facing, that even though those things may be the avenues through which we are walking, we are still being kept by God for Jesus. It's what he is doing with us. We're called, we're beloved in the Father, and we are kept for Jesus. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You are kept for Jesus. We're all being kept and preserved by God for the coming of Jesus Christ in glory. Notice Jude 22. It says there, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so there is the sense in which we are kept by God for Jesus, but we are also to be what? Keeping ourselves in the love of God. So, so as God is keeping us, we must also keep ourselves. We have the promise, the certainty of his keeping, but he is also calling us then to do the work of keeping ourselves. There's an energy, there's a, there's a passion, or there are responsibilities that we have to keep pursuing and placing ourselves in this relationship and maintaining that. It kind of sounds very similar to what Scripture also says, because you are holy, what? Be holy. You have the promise of your position with Christ, and now live out that promise. You have the promise of being kept for Christ, but you also have the responsibility of keeping yourself in Christ and in that relationship. It's a wonderful picture. It's a, it's a wonderful reality. This, is, this, this settles these people who are in the midst of this ungodly context. How are we to live our lives? How are we to be faithful believers? How is the church to flourish and thrive when there is this context of sensual, ungodly denial of Jesus Christ? The answer is, you're called. You are kept. And you are beloved in the Father. These are all foundational encouragements for what he is about to say. And then we have God's promise. We had God's promise. Here we go. God's promises. Again, we could blow through these. Oh, yeah, this is a greeting. Yeah, grace, you know, mercy, peace, and love. Yeah, that's fine. But let's just think about this. It says, mercy, peace, and love be what? Be multiplied to you. Just, just pause on that. Be multiplied to you. In other words, there's something about these three qualities, these three graces that Jude is saying, listen, I, I, want you to, I want you to experience not so much more in the sense of, of having more of these things as far as you know, having a, um, a, a quota or having a, an amount of these things, but I want you to experience the benefit of those things in your life in more abundance. So first of all, there's a multiplied mercy. Now, of course, mercy is God's withholding of what we actually deserve. 
Most of us, all of us, have experienced his mercy. As soon as we took our breath, born in sin, deserving death because of that sin, God mercifully allows us to continue living. And when we sinned that first sin, he still could have snuffed us out and been just in it, but out of his mercy, he doesn't. And on and on through life, he, he withholds the full brunt of the consequence or the punishment that you and I deserve. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross, one of the things that he did was he was merciful because you and I deserve that death. We deserve that wrath. But he absorbed it on himself. So this mercy is, is this, this wonderful reality of God's withholding what we actually deserve. But it is the foundation for the attitude and behavior that God and Jude now is calling the church too. Again, verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. We've experienced mercy. You have mercy as you're interacting with people who are struggling with this false teaching. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. So the, the idea here is that, is that mercy would, would continue to be experienced. It would be multiplied over and over and over again. Secondly, multiplied peace. Multiplied peace. Peace is a grace that can refer to two things. There's the peace of God, which comes from God, and there is also this, this status that is called the peace with God. Okay? And we can have that peace while living in the context of immorality, ungodliness, faithless Christian religion, and so on. So God gives us a multiplied peace for that particular season in our life that we can be confident about our peace with God. And once we are confident and we're sure of the peace with God, then we can seek to live our lives experiencing the peace of God, our, our ability now to do what he's called us to do. Because our relationship with him is eternally secure, and that gives us peace. And friends, that's a wonderful truth, is it not? And then there's this multiplied love, multiplied love. Love is it's not our love for others, but it's his love for us. And so Jude is, 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 is praying a, a blessing of, of these three graces being multiplied to these people that he is just about to unleash this message of warning to. He's setting the stage for some hard words. Not hard words so much against them, but hard words of be alert, take action. This is important. Pay attention. And for you to hear that, I want you to know, first of all, who I am and my commitment. Even though I am the brother of James and the brother of Jesus, I am committed to being a servant of Jesus Christ. I am committed to helping those who are called, who are beloved in the Father, those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And I'm committed to praying and to encouraging you and to seeing mercy and peace and love be multiplied in you with what I'm about to say. This is a necessary backdrop, friends. And it brings us then, brings us then to these final concluding thoughts. And this is kind of, uh, some things that I just thought would be helpful as we kind of set the stage for moving ahead. Because I want you to go home and I want you to, 
to, to read over these 25 verses. I want you to see the structure and kind of block it out in your Bible and just to know what's there and just to, to ask yourself, what is it that God is saying to you through Jude and what is he saying to our church through Jude? And so there's three things I want us to focus on here that I think will be helpful. First of all, notice this. Everything that Jude is addressing has both moral and theological significance. You say, okay, what does that mean? Uh, he is addressing what you believe, and what you believe ultimately leads to how you then live, right? If you pervert the grace of God so that it's sensual, then the truth of God, when it's distorted, opens up a way of living, a way of, a lifestyle, a sensual lifestyle. If you deny that Jesus is Lord, that opens up the door for a lifestyle that is filled in with other things. And so Jude here is addressing both moral and theological realities that we must take to heart. Everything that Jude is addressing has both moral and theological significance. Secondly, everything that Jude is warning the church about has happened before. And that's why he takes verses 5 through 16 to show this is not new. This is what happened before when similar people crept in among God's people and behaved in the same way and took on the same attitudes. This is how things ended up for them. And notice verse 5 begins with, I want to remind you. Notice verse 7. You must remember. So we must be willing to listen to his counsel because this is not new. And finally, everything Jude is saying is pushing us to consider how we are to live in such an ungodly, distorted, Christian, and I put that in quotes, context. To be alert, to build yourselves up in the holy faith, to pray in the spirit, to keep yourself in the love of God, to wait for the mercy of the Lord, to have a life of mercy that acts to save people from the fire and that hates the effects and the destructions that come with sin. Everything Jude is saying is pushing us to consider how we are to live. There's a practical side to this. Now, you know that many of the letters, whether it's Paul or others, they write, usually the first half is what? It's doctrine. And the latter part is usually the practical aspects that flow out of that doctrine. And there's something similar going on here. That on the front end, he's exposing the problem. He's alerting them. He's warning them. He's going to be illustrating it, describing it, and showing how this has been true in, in the history. And this is how God has dealt with these people. But then from verse 17 on, we have practical guidance about what he is calling us to do as the church in this kind of a context. And we could jump ahead to those things, but that would not give us, again, the, the place setting to understand the significance of those things. So he's pushing us 
and encouraging us to see how God wants us to live in this kind of a context. Lord, help us now. As we contemplate this incredible short book. Lord, I ask that whether it be a young person in here, whether it be an adult, whether it be um, um, someone who is visiting or someone who has just been here a short time, Lord, this is an opportunity for us all to say, we want to wrap our hands around one book of the Bible. We want to study it, we want to squeeze it, we want to mark it up, we want to think about it, we want to talk about it, we want to, we want to marinate in it, we want to know it. And we have five to six weeks to do that together. And I ask, Lord, that this would not be like, oh, okay, we're just going to wait. But Lord, I, I would just ask that each individual here would just personally take time to, to, to settle in this wonderful little letter and to ask, Lord, the question, Lord, what do you want me to see about my own walk with you? What do you want me to see about how I'm allowing this kind of false gospel to be present in my heart? And Lord, what are we doing as a church to allow that in? How are we counteracting that? And how are we protecting ourselves in a way that would glorify you? And would not be some kind of a ridiculously harsh tone, but would be a purposeful, deliberate, firm presence that stands up for the integrity of the gospel. Lord, we need wisdom. We need strength. But Lord, I, I would just ask that you would place on us this hunger and this desire to grow as we study this passage together. We ask this now in your wonderful holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>